Well, inside your program today, there's a yellow card. It looks like this. If you would take a minute and just pull it out. You can help stop the mayhem at daybreak by joining the Practical Needs team. And this is such a great uh, thing to go alongside of the series that we're in right now. It's just one way that you can take the resources, your time, talent, treasure that God has entrusted to you and use it as a way to bless others and, and meet needs that people have. There's a few different ways that you can respond, so I want to make sure that you're aware of that today. First of all, you can text CARE TEAM, uh, which is on there, the number to, to be texted, or you can scan this QR code, uh, and that, that's another way that you can get the, uh, connected with the information. And then finally, you could fill out this card and just drop it in the boxes as you go today. But make sure you take some time to consider this. Uh, also, you might want to like, on, if you're on Facebook, like the Daybreak Church People Helping People Facebook page. And that constantly puts up new opportunities, uh, different ways that you can serve people within our church family and help meet needs uh, of those in different times at different times of the year. Well, today we're talking about taking hold of the life that is truly life. And at the uh, end of our scripture verse, uh, scripture passage that we've been memorizing, there is a line there uh, together that says, uh, God wants us to do all this so that we can truly take hold of the life that he's given to us. So we're going to look this morning at our scripture memory passage, which serves as our text for today's message as well. And uh, Joel mentioned making you stand and recite it. At our other campus at Good Hope Road, Pastor Sean actually put together uh, a little gift. He had a daybreak mug, and I think inside of it, uh, he had a Chick-fil-A gift card and some leftover Halloween candy or something. But uh, he was going to give that as a gift to anyone who could stand and recite it, and we were three weeks into the series, and there have been no takers uh, so far. So uh, it is a little long, but we're just going to read it together this morning, and uh, you guys can come up if you haven't memorized. Say it to me afterwards, and Pastor Joe and I will reach deep into the drawer beside us and pull out some mints or something for prizes for you today. Let's read this passage together, beginning with verse 17. It says this, "'Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth.'" which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, some of you, as we were reading through that passage this morning may have noticed something for the first time. You may have thought, you know what? I don't know if this passage applies to me. Maybe this was written for someone else because you may have just noticed that the passage begins by saying, command those who are rich in this present world. And you're thinking, good, this one isn't for me today. Paul is talking to rich people. And you are correct because when Paul wrote this, he was speaking to uh, Timothy but he was also speaking to the church in Ephesus. Timothy was in Ephesus. Ephesus was probably one of the wealthiest cities at that particular time. And Timothy, uh, Paul was, was telling Timothy to speak these words to the church, which probably had many wealthy and influential members in it. But actually, if Paul was writing this today, he would be writing it to us. Because believe it or not, we are the rich in this present world. And there's a little um, website, if you go online, it's called Polk's Global Rich List. And in that website, there have been a, a number of economists and, and other uh, people who study finance who have gathered a bunch of statistics to chew on. If you have some time to go online, you can actually find out just how rich you are in this present world. 
But let me give you just a couple of the statistics that I pulled off of that website this week. If your family income, your combined family income, is $10,000 a year, you are wealthier than 84% of the world. If your combined family income is $10,000 a year, uh, you are in the top 15% of wealthy people in the world. Congratulations. I see some college students even running the numbers thinking, I might be there. I might be in that group of people. Uh, But if you bring in more than $50,000 a year, $50,000 or more, and I think the median income, median household income in this area is is about 52,000, so that would probably be most people. If you bring in 52,000 or 50,000 or more as a household, you make more than 99% of the world. You are in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world. Congratulations if that's you here today and you were unaware. (laughs) So often we just compare ourselves to our own culture and so we don't think of ourselves in light of the world. But when God says to us uh, that we're the rich or when he's speaking to the rich in this present world, this scripture is really for us today. And what does God want for us, those of us who have been entrusted with a lot? Well, if you look at the the last phrase in the passage, it says this, God wants us to be able to take hold of the life that is truly life. He doesn't want us to miss out on life because we've been entrusted with a lot and our focus would be elsewhere. God's saying, I want those of you who I've entrusted a lot to, to really be able to take hold of this life. Recently, I was watching, I turned on the TV, there was a talk show on, the topic interested me, so I stayed on for just a minute, and two of the members of the panel, uh, one was an atheist and one was a Christian. If I said the other members, you would think it was a joke, because there was a rabbi on there also, and then another, there was a rabbi, an atheist, and a Christian. Uh, It's not a joke, though. But when I turned it on, they asked the atheist in particular, they said to him, can you um, tell us what do you believe happens when you die? what do you believe about eternity? He said, well, I don't believe that there is anything after you die. I believe that everything is to be had in this life happens while you're alive in this life. And he went on to say that um, because he doesn't believe in anything after this life, that he wants to make the most of this life. And he actually said this. He said, "Um, I want to live my life to the fullest. I don't know that he knew that he was quoting scripture in that particular time, the atheist. But he said, I want to live my life to the fullest. He said, so the way I want to do that is I want to experience everything I can. I want to consume everything I can. And I want to just use up as much of the, the resources in, uh, that, that I have while I'm here in this life. And the guy turned to the Christian. The Christian said, you know, that's interesting because we want the same thing out of life. Jesus actually said that he came so that I could experience life to the fullest. I could experience an abundant life. So you and I actually want the same thing. We just have totally different motives and a totally different outcome as as we approach it. He said, my goal, and and he talked about Philippians chapter 2 in so many words, and we started this series talking about Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus made himself nothing, and he took on the form of a servant, and he emptied himself so that his life could be invested in the lives of others so that he could have an eternal impact. And he talked about the fact that he just wanted to be a servant and wanted to use the things that God had entrusted to him, his life and his time and his treasure, in such a way that it would have impact and it would, it would live on beyond him. And it was just interesting to see that contrast between two people who said they actually wanted the same thing out of life, but had different ways that they were going to get there. So what can we learn today from God about what it means to really, truly take hold of the life that he's given us? And there's a statement at the top of your outline. If you open up your outlines um, that are in your program guide today, there's a statement at the top. It's actually a summary 
of our scripture memory passage from 1 Timothy chapter 6, and it's going to serve as our outline for the message today. And I'm going to read it to you. It says this, taking hold of this life requires a transfer of hope demonstrated through generosity that is motivated by an eternal perspective. This is a summary of the scripture. It says this, taking hold of this life requires a transfer of hope demonstrated through generosity that's motivated by an eternal perspective. So let's jump into our outline this morning. The first point is this, taking hold of this life requires first a transfer of hope. It requires a transfer of hope. We're going to read the first of the three verses, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So what happens when we put our hope in the wrong place in life? When we put our hope in the wrong place, we actually rest our lives or we rest our hope on the wrong foundation. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul makes it clear. He calls Timothy, he refers to him as his young son in the faith. And he says, uh, Timothy, people don't naturally put their hope in a God that they can't see. It's not a natural thing. He said, instead, they lean hard on, on putting their hope in what they can see. And their accumulation of wealth uh, is their focus, hoping that it will give them the security that they really long for in life. But the truth is that wealth is not the sure bet that we often think it is, because whether you're here and you see yourself as wealthy or you're here and you see yourself as far from wealthy, if you see yourself as far from wealthy, you think things like, well, if only I had this, then I would feel more secure. If only we were able to have this much in savings, or if I had enough to pay these bills, or if I could only get this reliable transportation, or if only I had these things accessible to me, then I'd have more security and my life would be, would be uh, more sound. And if you're here from a perspective of, of having wealth, often you've banked on it. You've spent a lot of time thinking about it, and you've spent a lot of time thinking about what your, your net worth is. And as a matter of fact, Paul says that the accumulation of wealth in this world is very uncertain. And in the past few years, uh, particularly the last five or six years, when the economic picture has been a bit uncertain, um, it's shown us primarily that the accumulation of wealth doesn't bring the certainty that maybe at one point we believed that it would. As a matter of fact, if you are here and you have invested a lot and you have a lot of wealth to be concerned about, you probably had more fear in the past five years than those who sit in the room who don't have it. You probably had a lot of concern about what things were going to look like for you in the economic picture. So for you and I to truly take hold of this life, we have to change the way that we think, not only about our hope, but about the source of our hope as well. And Paul says that God is the certain thing in our life because he is what? What does the verse say about God? He is the one who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That sounds like a pretty good source, huh? God richly provides us with everything that we need for our enjoyment. God is our sure foundation. He's our sole provider, and our hope and our confidence are well-placed when they're founded in him. Throughout the New Testament, um, in the life of Jesus, he always pointed to the Father as our source of hope. He did it consistently. In the book of Luke, Jesus was teaching one day, and he was standing before a crowd, just uh, delivering a message to them, 
and a shout came right in the middle of, of his talk to this crowd. A shout came from the crowd, and it was a request. There was a man who was asking Jesus to command his brother to split the family inheritance with him. So Jesus is teaching, and we don't think that it was necessarily tied. This man just burst into the conversation and said, Jesus, I want you to command my brother to share the inheritance with me. And Jesus answers his question with three different things. First of all, he gives him, he, he answers with another question, and then he gives him a warning, and then he tells him a story. So I think he really wanted to drill this in. So first, Jesus asks a rhetorical question, and he says to the man, who set me up to be the arbitrator between the two of you? In other words, he basically said, aren't you guys mature enough to work this out? Do I look like I'm wearing a black and white suit that I need to referee you two today? My mom used to always say that to us when my brothers and I would come to her growing up. She's like, am I wearing a black and white shirt? Am I to be your referee today? (laughs) And somehow as I parent now, I find myself saying that exact same line uh, that my mom said many times. But after Jesus says, do I need to be your referee today between you and your brother? Then Jesus gives him a warning, and he essentially says this. He says, hey, I want you to remember that he who dies with the most toys does not win in this life. So again, he's starting to get to motivation. And then he goes on to say this. After, after the question and the warning, he tells the story because he really wants this to sink in. And this story is in your outline today from Luke chapter 12. It says this, and then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. I want to take a second and go back to those first couple paragraphs, and I want you to circle or underline all the I's and the me's in in this passage, all right? So uh, he told this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, do you think this guy had transferred uh, his hope from his own wealth and his, his own control over to God? It doesn't sound like it. It sounds like he was pretty strong in his own plans and in his own aspirations about his wealth. Now, if you're this man, it makes sense to do what he did if you're banking your hopes on the riches of this world rather than banking your hopes on God and knowing a rich relationship with him. Because when we bank our hopes on this world, we always need to accumulate more because it's like we never have enough. Too much is never enough. But when we bank our hopes on God, we learn to become satisfied with what he's provided as enough. And then we start to see it differently and we work on being good managers of what God has provided So when we transfer our hope account from the treasures of this life over to uh, the kingdom of God, then we move our lives from from what is shifting sand and an uncertain foundation over to what is a certain foundation in God. And in the verses that follow, Jesus goes on to tell his disciples, don't worry about your own life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about your body. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. 
because God is your provider. He's the source of your security, and he's going to take care of those things. And then Jesus said this in the verses that follow that, Luke 12, 32, and 34. He's speaking to his disciples now. The crowd is gone. He says, don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I love this little aside from Jesus because what I feel like he's saying is, hey, when you're following me, he's saying this to his disciples, when you're following me, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. It's okay to transfer your hope from yourselves to God and his kingdom. Don't be afraid to transfer your trust and your hope to me. I grew up in a church that was um, pretty ritualistic, meaning we did the same things in the service pretty much every week. How many of you are familiar, you've had a church background like that where you knew what was coming next, huh? All right. Um, And part of that uh, was the way that we handled the offering in our church. And at the appointed time, the ushers would come to the front of the sanctuary and they'd bring the offering plates to the front and the pastor would pray And then a special music number would start during the offering. How many of you remember special music, you know? I always wonder why that music was so special. Nobody, I never understood that. But they'd have special music during the offering while the offering was being taken. And then at the end of the special music, the ushers would all take their spots at the back of the room and they'd wait for the key from the organist or the piano player. And when they gave the nod and they'd start playing, then the ushers would come forward to the front and they would put all the offering plates on the table right in front of the pulpit. And then we'd all sing this song. Does anybody know the song that we sang? The doxology, right? How many of you sang the doxology growing up in your church? All right, we're going to sing it right now. Ready? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. You did sing it. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Big finish. Amen. All right. That was good, but we have to do it again because you broke into the harmonies only on the amen at the end. And there are some sweet harmonies in this song, all right? And you know where they break. Right at the end of that first line. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Or go to the high part. Here we go. Ready? I'm going to stay on the melody. It's your job to fill in the harmonies. Here we go. Ready? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. There we go. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Bring it home now. Amen. Sue, is there choir practice this week? (laughs) Wow, that was pretty sweet. Very nice. So you do know the doxology. This song is called the doxology. It comes from a Greek word, and the Greek word is doxa, and that word actually means to ascribe worth or value, especially in regards to God. It's the root word for the word glory. 
God's glory. And when we sing, praise God, from whom all blessings flow, when we sing the doxology, the intention was, we give glory to God. And we remember that our hope is in him, that he is central to our lives. And singing that song was a great reminder because the first line that says, praise God from whom all blessings flow, after we took the offering, was just a reminder, who is our source? Who is our provider? In whom do we find our security? It's a reminder that our hope and our certainty and our confidence have been transferred to God. You see, when you and I made a decision to put our faith and our trust in Jesus, we did a couple of things. We said, first of all, Jesus, I want you to forgive my sins. And we received his love, his grace, his mercy, which we so didn't deserve, but we freely received it from him. And then we also said, Jesus, would you lead my life? Would you become my Lord, my leader? And when we ask him because of the work that he had done on the cross for us to not only forgive us, but to lead us as well, it was our way of saying, God, it's not my plan anymore. It's your plan for my life. It's not my provision anymore. It's your provision. I trust your provision. It's not me putting my hope and my confidence in me and what I'm going to be able to accomplish. Now my hope and my confidence are fully in you, God. I live this life fully relying on you. And as his followers, we learn to trust him and we learn to say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. It all comes from him. To you be the the doxa, the glory. He is our source. And we do this in other areas of our life as Christ followers, but sometimes I think we miss it in different ways. We, we pray before every meal. Do we pray before every meal just because it's tradition? We pray before every meal because it's, it's our hope that we would remember that God is our source. God is our provider. Our hope is found in him. He may have given us the ability to work and to put food on our table, but he is the provider of that food that we're going to eat and the relationships that we are going to have, the, the fellowship we're going to have as we eat it together. You know, and maybe we should actually do this in more areas of our life. Maybe we should become a little bit more ritualistic in the times that we recognize God as our hope and as our source. Maybe we should go throughout our day and and sing or pray, praise God from whom all blessings flow when we wake up in the morning. And it's God who gave us the breath of life. We might just want to pause every morning when we wake up and say, thank you, God. To you be the glory. My hope is in you. It's not in myself or my ability to maintain my own health today. My hope is in you. When you get dressed, God, thank you for providing clothes for me. You know what? In scripture, it says, you don't have to worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. I think there must have been concern about, do we have enough clothing? (laughs) I mean, there are other places in the world where they're very thankful for clothing. It's another thing that we tend to take for granted. When you start your car, God, Thank you for transportation. My hope is in you. You're the source of all good things. When you walk into your workplace, I talked to someone after the first service. I said, how's work going for you right now? And they said, it's a job. Praise God for a job. Whether you love your work or not, God provided that job for you. It's his provision. When you enter your home, God provided that house for you. Your ability to pay your mortgage is not what you have your hope in. Your hope is in him. When you see your family, your wife, your kids, the relationships that matter to you, thank you, God, to you be the glory. When you sit down to eat, it's his provision. When you go to bed at night, 
It's him who sustained you through that day, and it's him who will sustain you through the next one. Praise God. God, you are our hope. You've richly provided all of this for my enjoyment. That's what the scripture says. That's the one we put our hope in, the one who's richly provided it all for us. You're my source. My hope is in you. And if we did this more consistently, maybe we'd remember every moment that God is our hope and our certainty, not our wealth, because we live in a culture where we have it all and somehow it confuses us in thinking that we were able to provide it for ourselves just because we're fortunate enough to live in a, in a country where it's more easily accessible to us than it is in many other places in the world. And I'm not denying hard work or any of that, but I'm pointing to the fact that we can get so confused in our belief that we've sustained ourselves and that we're not dependent on God. And there are places in the world where they are so thankful for every bite that they can eat. Sometimes we just have to remember who it is and what it is that we put our hope in. So maybe as you leave this morning, if you drop an offering in the box, maybe you just want to hum the doxology this morning to help you remember on your way out. Maybe you are considering filling out the four-month giving challenge. And maybe you need to think about this, this week, this month. God, I can trust you. I can trust you to tithe because if I tithe, I'm just showing, I'm just doing, I'm just honoring you. I'm recognizing that what, all that I have has been given to you and I'm going to give a portion of it back in obedience to you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you, God. I can commit to do this. Whatever it takes for us to be obedient to God. The second part of our outline is given life from the first part because when we transfer our hope from accumulating wealth to developing a rich relationship, a rich trust relationship with God, then our heart begins to change and we begin to reflect the character of God. And that's the second point. Taking hold of this life requires, number one, a transfer of hope, and number two, demonstrated through generosity. Demonstrated through generosity. 1 Timothy 6, 18 says, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Now, think about this for a minute. Paul was writing this to Timothy. Timothy is a young guy, and he's in a church probably that's in one of the wealthiest cities of that day, and there are probably very wealthy and influential people in there, people who have been around the block. And Paul is telling Timothy, hey boy, command them. <laughs> you go in there and you command them to do good works. You command them to do that. And I can't help but think, you know, what was Paul saying? Was Timothy supposed to be like the giving czar, like the Holy Spirit uh, of how to give? Was he supposed to go around and say things like, hey, you with that coat, give it to that poor person over there. Or you, go cook some food for those people over there who are in need. You know, or go, go cash your check and make sure that the widow and her children get some. Like, I can't imagine Timothy, when, when Paul said he's commanding him to do this, I can't imagine that that was Timothy's emphasis to put a guilt trip on the people there or, or to try to see their behavior change. But I think that the, the emphasis here is that when Paul was saying to Timothy, when we transfer our weight from leaning on our wealth over to leaning on God, then we realize that everything is provided by God generously and then our behavior begins to reflect God's generous nature. And the word command here actually is used more as a warning. Timothy is warning people. He's, Paul's saying, Timothy, warn them that when you're wealthy and when you have a lot, it's really easy for you to believe that you are the source of all things. It's really easy for you to not give God uh, the glory or for you to remember that God is where your hope is, not in your own wealth. When we truly transfer our hope from ourselves and our own wealth over to God, what it does is it frees us up 
to be able to be generous with what God has given us. And I want to show you a story this morning of a guy who does not attend our church, but I couldn't help but be moved by this story when I watched this this, this week. This is a man who learned to do just that, to take his hope from his own wealth, to place it in God, to learn to be generous like God, and then God gave him a great different perspective. Let's watch together. You know, being in the uh, investment business, I had always practiced what I'd preached, which was you need to save. And I was a really good saver. I always tithed. I always gave my 10% to God, and then I kept about 30 to 40 for me. The more I saved and the more wealth I accumulated, the happier I thought I would be. And I made it, and temporarily it was very satisfying. And then shortly thereafter, it was so empty. It didn't buy me the happiness I thought it was going to buy me. It was always, once I reach this amount of wealth, I'm going to be happy. Once I get this car, I'm going to be happy. Once I build this house or get into this neighborhood. Once we have another child, well, we ended up with four. (laughs) And love them, love them, love them, but that didn't fill it either. And every time we would reach a certain goal, there was no happiness. There was no contentment. I kept finding that that wasn't what gave me gratification. It didn't give me satisfaction. It didn't fulfill me. So I I started to ask around. I had a number of friends that uh, were pastors, and uh, he mentioned uh, generous giving to me. And I said, wow, that sounds interesting. At the conference, I heard some great teaching on stewardship. I heard some amazing stories about people doing things I'd never imagined, people giving away 30, 50, 70% of their income to God every single year. And it just blew, blew my mind. And I thought, this is amazing, but God, what do you want me to do? And that's when God spoke to me and took me from 10% giving up to 15% giving. You know, it kind of gave me that little step up and said, okay, do you trust me with 15%? You trusted me with 10? Will you trust me with 15? So I, so I did, and I gave him that extra 5%. But I think the point where the switch finally flipped for me on the accumulation as opposed to giving was probably in 2008. The world was crazy and the stock market was dropping. It was down 57% at one point over the course of about 18 months. And with that, my net worth fluctuated over 50% in the wrong direction. I had put so much trust and so much confidence in this net worth that I had built. And all of a sudden, half of it's gone, just like that. And I looked and I said, this is so unimportant. How much I have, it makes so little difference. It's like he showed me that this can be gone any moment. You think that it's there and it's always going to be there. It may not be. I can take it whenever I want to. What are you going to do with it while I'm letting you have it? And I thought that, what I can pass on and forward for God, that's what's going to matter. And yeah, I'd I'd been giving some, I'd been tithing and giving a little bit over the tithe, but that's when he helped me flip from saving 30 plus percent of my income to giving way over the tithe. Well, all these years I'd watched Ron, you know, this business guy, driven business guy, wanting to go from one goal to the next goal to the next goal. And um, it was pretty cool to finally see him 
changed his way of thinking and wanting to give money away. And I noticed that it made him so much happier. At that time, you know, God had, had taken me to uh, 25% of my income giving, and he was also taking me on a journey. I got a call from one of the charities that I gave to, which is TEAM, the Evangelical Alliance Mission, and they have missionaries throughout the world. And we went over to Stockholm, and again we stopped for just a couple of minutes to see what God would lay on our heart. And that's when God told me, bring people over here. Show them what I'm doing. And at the same time, he spoke to me and said, he asked me to part with more of what I had. He asked me to double my giving, to take it from 25% that year to 50% of my income. And I thought, I know God controls how much comes in and how much goes out. If he wants half of it, I better give him half of it. And I did. And it was so much fun to figure out what to do with that money. And that first year, we took 17 people over to Stockholm with us. The following year, we ended up with 25 people in Stockholm. And during that time period, we had been speaking to Lincoln Berean, Jeff Peterson and I had been talking about what God was doing in Stockholm. And they decided to join up with us. And we ended up with 57 people in Stockholm last year, in three different parks, speaking to hundreds of people. And to think about the multiplication impact of that is mind boggling to me. Over 50 nationalities that can be touched, a lot of those people work there for a couple of years, go back to their home country, where they can spread the gospel, only eternity will know the impact of what we are able to help Jesus with here. We all act like this is eternity. If I have enough money by the time I'm 50 or 55, or I can own the world, that's what really matters. If I didn't have some kind of an impact with what God gave me, what a waste. What a waste of my life. I hope that God continues to tell me what to do and I hope that I'm ridiculously obedient to what he asks because all that matters in the end is what I was able to do for him. That's it. Nothing else matters. It's a great story, huh? I know what some of you are thinking though. You're sitting there looking at that investment banker guy and you're thinking, yeah, but I could probably live my whole life off of his tithe, right? That's what some of you are thinking. You know, I want you to know this morning that God's word and his promises are true whether you make 10,000, 100,000, or a million a year. It doesn't really matter. We all have the opportunity to obey God and to experience his blessing in our lives. And that's how we truly take hold of this life, is each of us, no matter where we are, no matter what we've been entrusted with, each of us learning to be obedient to God and to take hold of the life that he's given us. Psalm 37 says that the wicked borrow and they scheme and they try to contrive and take things, but the godly are generous givers. And this guy's story ties perfectly into the next part of our scripture passage, the final part, because God gave him an eternal perspective. It was great to hear him saying, my whole perspective changed. Only things that I do that are going to last for eternity are going to matter. So let's go back to our outline. To truly take hold of this life requires a transfer of hope demonstrated through generosity That number three is motivated by an eternal perspective. That's motivated by an eternal perspective. 1 Timothy 6.19 says, In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, 
so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And it's interesting how Paul uses a play on words here to make his point about how to build a firm foundation. He says that a foundation for the soul cannot be built on placing our hope in our ability to earn or to save or to invest or control the wealth that God entrusts to us. Those things are good practices for us to be able to learn how to do those things with what's been entrusted to us, but they cannot serve as the foundation for our hope. Your ability to save and invest and do whatever you're going to do with the resources God has provided you is, cannot be the foundation for your hope. If you put your hope in that foundationally, you're missing it. Instead, Paul says, we join God in building an eternal foundation that begins right now and will last forever. And when we do this with open hands, that's when we learn to really take hold of the life that God has meant for us to live. And I'm amazed... I don't know how this works for you, but I'm amazed at how short-sighted I become when it comes to my life because there's things that keep me busy. There's things that all of a sudden create crises or circumstances that pop up. And all of a sudden, I look at the demands on my life of my time, my talent, and my treasure, and I lose sight of the life that is truly life, the life that God called me to live. And over and over again, in those times, I hear the voice of Jesus just whispering to me, telling me that, to lift my head up out of my circumstance, to lift my head up out of the busyness of my life. And he invites me to just step back and look at things from a different perspective, from his perspective. And he tells me to invest in things that last, to transfer my hope, to lean in hard on him, to begin to trust him every day, to begin to hear his voice in the decisions that I'm making about my time, talent, and treasure. Not just to openly give everything away, but to learn how to trust God and be willing to give everything away when he speaks. To learn how to hear his voice and know what to do, whether it's our last dollar or it's a lot of dollars. Whether it's our last hour that we have that day or if the whole day is open for us. Not to make decisions based on what we think is wise, but to hear his voice and let him lead those decisions every moment of every day, to take hold of this life with open hands, to receive humbly all that God has provided for me, and then to wisely and generously disperse the resources that he's entrusted to me every day. Many of you, or most of you, have probably heard of the Nobel Peace Prize, but you may not know how the award came to be, and I want to read you the story of Alfred Nobel, its founder. Alfred Nobel dropped the newspaper and put his head in his hands. It was 1888. Nobel was a Swedish chemist who made his fortune inventing and producing dynamite. His brother Ludwig had died in France, but now Alfred's grief was compounded by dismay because he had just read an obituary in a French newspaper, not his brother's obituary, but his. An editor had confused the brothers, and the headline read, The Merchant of Death is Now Dead. Alfred Nobel's obituary described a man who had gotten rich by helping people kill one another. Shaken by this appraisal of his life, Nobel resolved to use his wealth to change his legacy. When he died eight years later, he left more than $9 million to fund awards for people whose work benefited humanity. The awards became known as the Nobel Prizes. Alfred Nobel had a rare opportunity to look at the assessment of his life at its end and still have the chance to change it. For those of you who have taken the four-month giving challenge, uh, we sent you a little book. It's called The Treasure Principle. It's a great little read. And in that book, 
it says this, five minutes after we die, we'll know exactly how we should live. But God has given us his word so we don't have to wait to die to find out. His spirit empowers us to live that way every moment of every day right now. So here's a challenging thought for you today. I want you to ask yourself, five minutes after I die, what resources that God has entrusted to me, whether it be time, talent, or treasure, will I wish I would have given away more freely while I still had the chance? What resources that God has entrusted to me will I wish I would have given away more freely while I still had the chance? And when you think about that and you come up with an answer, I want to ask you, why not give it away right now? Why not spend the rest of our lives closing the gap between what we'll wish we would have given and what we really are giving? Alfred Nobel managed to change his legacy in this world, and we have a far more strategic opportunity to change our legacy in the world to come. When you leave this world, will you be known as the one who accumulated treasures on earth that you couldn't keep, or will you be recognized as one who invested treasures in heaven that you couldn't lose. And I want you to put yourself in Alfred Nobel's shoes for just a moment. If you opened the paper today and you were able to read your own obituary, what would it say about you and your reflection of God to this world? Jesus said it this way. He said, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store, yourselves, store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. I think this is one of the great paradoxes of Scripture, how Jesus taught us to live life upside down. How do we truly take hold of this life? We truly take hold of this life by learning to open our hands. I want you to flip over your outline to the back. We're going to read together one more time the scripture memory passage from 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. Let's read together. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of this life that is truly life. Would you bow your heads? I want to pray this prayer for you. This is our serious prayer, but I'm going to pray it for me, and I want to pray it for us as well. Lord, would you teach us to be generous like you? God, would you show us how to live with open hands, how to humbly receive all that comes from you, and then disperse wisely the resources that you've entrusted, that I may be like Jesus, that we may be like Jesus, humble servants, sacrificial servants, generous servants, reflecting the Father's generous nature and in doing so, helping others discover a life-changing journey with you. And it's in Jesus' name that we prayed. And everyone said...
Amen.
You know, as we respond to God today, uh, if you're here today and you have a prayer request, something that is just, it's, it's on your mind right now, on your heart, something's going on in, in your life, in your family, and you'd like your church family to be praying with you, we'd love for you to take a moment, put that on your response card today, and there will be people who will follow up with you this week, let you know they prayed for you. There will be people praying with you throughout this entire week. Please, please, if that's your response today, take a moment and fill out uh, that prayer request on the card today. You know, I was thinking about how key this uh, practical needs ministry is and and, uh, how critical um, it is in our obedience to God to be a part of meeting needs in love, both within our church family and other people in the community who have needs like this. So maybe this is your response today. Maybe filling this out, deciding how you can use something that God has entrusted to you in order to bless someone else. Maybe that's part of your response today. Or maybe today... um, You've heard about the four-month giving challenge, and you've just hesitated. Uh, We want you to know something today. We've said this a couple of different ways, but we did not do this challenge because Daybreak Church was in a terrible place financially and about to close our doors. We did this challenge because we fully believe that your intimacy with God, that your spiritual growth, that the next steps in your walk with Him are so tied to your ability to live with open hands, to your obedience to God, with your resources, to you saying, hey God, you've entrusted all of this to me and I can obey and I'm gonna trust you and I'm gonna say for four months, God, I'm gonna open my hands and I'm gonna give faithfully to you for four months and that you're gonna open the door to the promises of God being true in your life as well as you recognize his generosity and his provision for you. Maybe this is your response today. We've had 85 um, families or individuals, 85 commitments that have been made so far, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And somebody said if 15 more came in today, they'd match those gifts. I'm just kidding. None of that happened. But I do want you to know that if God is speaking to you about this and you've not responded and you need to say for your own next step, God, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to offer part of what you've entrusted to me back to you. If that's your step today, then take a minute and just fill this thing out. We'll pray with you and we'll stand with you as you obey God in faith. Whatever your step of obedience is today, let's take these next few moments, respond to God, let him speak to you. Respond so that we're not just hearers of the word, but so that we're living it out. We're doers of the word as well. Let's respond to God in these next few moments of worship.
And my prayer for this life. 